Hello and welcome to another episode of The Grey Nado, a Houdinki podcast. It's a loose discussion of travel, diving, driving, gear, and most certainly watches. This is episode 124, and we thank you for listening. Well, James, uh, we're finally getting around to our crop of August Q&A, and we've got a bit of a new format. Yeah, so kind of this is the first time that we're doing the Q&A kind of in this format. It's not going to be like a normal show where we squeeze a Q&A inside of uh, some chit-chat at the top and then some uh, final notes at the end. We're getting a lot of these questions. We actually probably have too many to get to despite the change in format, but the, uh, the Q&A moving forward will be um, um, just an episode for people who are subscribed and, and kind of dialed into the show. I think that's who calls in and leaves us messages. Uh, so I, I think that's the easiest way to kind of do these. Like we said, we, we wanted to separate this from the bi-weekly ones so that we still did two normal shows and then a kind of bonus Q&A. So that's what you're listening to now. So yeah, we're not going to talk about our Land Rovers and our Jeeps and and you know new bags and hats and <laughs> stuff like that unless it comes up in the questions uh so yeah uh, for anyone who for whatever reason if this is the first episode that you're getting us at thank you so much for uh, checking it out uh we do a kind of a different format for most other episodes but there is a monthly q a which we drop kind of at the start of the following month so this is the august q a and you'll be getting it early september and otherwise we do a show every two weeks uh on thursday mornings that it will come out and uh and yeah check that out for kind of the normal three-part format um but with that in mind if you're listening to this and it spurs a question in your soul record it into the voice memo app on your phone and then email that question to the at gmail.com that's how you get on the show keep the message under a minute preferably and we would love to chat about whatever topics uh kind of on your mind so uh with that in mind, uh, how about we start with this first one from Paul? Yeah, good idea. Let's do it. Hi there, James and Jason. My name is Paul. I'm a new listener from Chicago. My question is about your travel habits with your watches um, when you're traveling for personal reasons, not for work. Um, just wondering, do you take your real nice pieces? Are you pretty streamlined? with your watches um, when you do travel personally. Um, I just want to kind of get a whole playbook of what you guys do and what's been working for you. Obviously, many of us in the watch community are concerned about magnetizing our watches through security, um, whether we'd become targets to thieves out there, unfortunately. Um, if we bring our most recognizable, expensive timepieces out there, um, do you guys consider that um, when you do travel? Um, thanks. Um, really enjoying uh, your podcast. Thanks again. Bye. Well, thanks for that question, Paul. It's a it's one that comes up uh, somewhat often. I don't. I'm not sure we've actually talked about it on a Q and A episode, but I know we've talked about traveling with watches and. Uh, you know, personally, I've I've never been particularly concerned about traveling with nicer watches. I don't know if it's uh, you know <laughs> overconfidence or just uh, the places I'm going. Uh, I, I seldom think about magnetism or damage since most of the watches I have are you know pretty burly, rugged pieces and and can stand up to some abuse. And I think most of them are anti-magnetic enough to survive a, a trip through the the X-ray machine. Um, I think the bigger concern, obviously, is you know, depending on what you're wearing, it can be a recognizable symbol of wealth, and that's not always appropriate everywhere. Um, 
And so, you know, I do take that into consideration and I almost always take a, a backup watch in the form of like a quartz, uh, you know, now the Safarni will be a good, good backup piece or one of my CWC quartz divers, just kind of keep that in my dop kit or my backpack and, you know, pull that out if, if circumstances, uh, merit, um, or if anything happens to the primary watch I'm wearing, or, or if I just don't want to wear it to a certain place during a trip, um, Seems a little odd to be actually be talking about traveling with watches during a time when very few of us are traveling. But I think uh, I think it's a good question, and I would just say you know the rule of thumb is to just kind of be be aware of your surroundings and kind of be sensitive to you know I don't want to say audience, but you know the people you'll run into and what what that watch that you're wearing projects about you and and how secure you feel. James, how do you feel about this? Yeah, I would agree. When you know, when when I travel, I, I definitely don't like taking more than two watches, especially if that means I have to leave anything in the hotel room. Yeah, because uh, I think that's a bigger issue for me than the possibility of street crime. Um, it, you know, is just having them somewhere in your room, or even just not having it on your wrist. Uh, so when I used to do a lot of traveling, and, and uh, Paul, I know that you had said, uh, you know, travel for. Uh, uh, you know, personal travel, but I, I didn't do a lot of personal travel for years because I traveled a lot for work and a lot of it was pretty luxurious. So there's there's a middle ground there at least. And and I think when I would land in, in cities, cities I hadn't been to or, or places I hadn't been to, I, I was I found a lot of comfort in just having one watch. Mm-hmm. Now, typically that would be my Rolex. And uh, and I think that's fine for the areas of where I was traveling. The other thing is is you can always kind of I would say consider the cities, if you're going to cities, if you're traveling for tourism reason to cities at some point in the future, uh, just try and maybe do a couple quick Google searches and make sure that there's not like a rash of crime surrounding watches or something like that. You know, uh, pre-COVID, last fall, uh, there's there's some stuff like that going on in Paris, which -hmm. would definitely make me think about just bringing my Garmin or, you know, a, a watch that wasn't a Rolex, basically. But I don't have a really flashy collection where you have to worry about that. And, and typically when I travel um, for myself, I'm, I'm going somewhere where I'm either going to be diving or, or hiking or climbing or that sort of thing. Uh, and so I'd want to watch that kind of aligns with those uh, scenarios. But the way that I, that, that I travel or did travel kind of at a personal level was more isolated than it was to large uh, you know, populous areas. I think we, you know, you did a lot, I did a lot of work travel to cities and uh, you know major major hubs throughout the world, and I, I never gave it a lot of a lot of thought, especially when it comes to things like magnetiz- uh, you know magnetizing the watch. I don't take the watch off when I go through security. Um, I think maybe in the last hundred flights, the last not counting COVID, the last year and a bit, maybe in fourteen months of travel, I got asked once to take the watch off my wrist. Uh, they just typically don't ask; they can see that it's a watch, uh, so that that hasn't been my issue. Uh, I, I haven't had anything uh, be magnetized in a really long time. Uh, certainly, I don't believe from travel. And then, as far as security, I, I would say that it's a two-part thing. Like, don't don't bring watches that to places where you you if you feel it's uncomfortable, like that it would be conspicuous to have it on your wrist. And the other thing is, don't don't bring so many watches on what's going to be your personal vacation that you spend you know time being anxious about your watches. Yeah, you know, bring a great watch like a Safarni and and treat it like a great vacation watch, and then your other watches will be there when you get home. Yeah, and I, one thing I would add too is, um, you know, certain watches draw attention to themselves more than others, uh, and and that can come down to something like the strap. 
you know, a Rolex on a bracelet is a very iconic look. A lot of people mm-hmm. know that. I've also, uh, you know, heard it said that, you know, from a distance that date magnifier Cyclops on a Rolex is easily recognizable. And something as simple as putting, uh, if you're going to wear something like a Rolex or an Omega or something a little flashier on a bracelet, maybe it's time to switch it out to a NATO strap and worst case, uh, flip it around so it's on the inside of your wrist. So all that shows is the band. Um, yep. It's these small things, you know, that, that can make a difference. Yeah, and situational awareness as always with with whatever you have on you that could be of value. Whether that's uh, if you're in a, especially in cities with um, pick, where pickpocketing is is uh, an issue, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, make sure that you you're not only worried about your watch as they make off with your wallet and your passport <laughs> and your camera or whatever else. Just you know, try and keep things in closed pockets. You know, keep things under sleeves, keep cameras under jackets. That's you know, all, all kind of simple things that have have worked for me for a long time. Thanks very much for that question, Paul. And uh, when traveling resumes, I, I hope that it, uh, you're able to uh, go some places and enjoy some vacations with some of your watches. Uh, next up, we have a question about uh, basically about lugs from a fellow named Neil. So let's get to it. Hi, James and Jason. This is Neil from Champaign, Illinois. Two questions about lugs. When people give a measurement of lug to lug, Do they normally measure to the end of each lug or do they measure from spring bar hole to spring bar hole? And second question, if you have a case, whether it's stainless steel or titanium, and it does not have drilled lugs, is there any downside to having your jeweler drill those holes all the way through? Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. Well, interesting question, Neil. Uh, James, do you want to jump in on this? Yeah, for sure. I could keep it pretty simple. So as when I measure lug to lug, it's the absolute maximum length of the lug, not where the lug holes are. Uh, the idea is to try and get the, an idea for the maximum physical dimensions of the watch. Uh, so it's not from where the spring bar hole is, but where the lug actually ends um, in terms of the total length of the watch in, in that uh, you know dimension. And then as far as getting the lugs drilled on your watch, I, I would say that comes down to two factors. One, how well do you trust your watchmaker? If they're capable of doing this and this is something they're comfortable doing, super. And two, are you worried about possibly damaging the resale of said watch by modifying it? If um, if you trust your watchmaker and this isn't the kind of watch that you're planning to sell at some point, or, or maybe it's a, a watch that doesn't have a, a huge value to begin with and you're not that worried about it, uh, I say go for it. You're not going to hurt it. Uh, you might have trouble finding someone who can do the titanium. Uh, can be difficult to tool for titanium. Not always. You know, the person could be pr- more than capable. Um, but I've known a lot of guys that bought you know SKX 007s and had them drilled um, because that you know that's a $200 watch. It's not the kind of thing where you have to really preserve your uh, you know it's a, you know a thing that has to always have boxes, papers, and 100% original parts and everything. But if you're modifying the watch, it's like modifying a car. Uh, typically you're not doing something as a plus to its value. It would be for a personal decision. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that, although I would be curious to see how somebody actually drills lugs. I've always been curious how you get a tool between the lugs and then drill out, because presumably you're not drilling from the outside in, which in my mind would be easier to do, but I'd be curious. Yeah, there, there might be a, a, a tool to go outside in that, that uh, locates the bit. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously, if you have a watch with a flat-sided lug, 
Yeah. It's a lot easier. But if you think about the curvature of, of for my example, an SKX 007, mm-hmm. it's not like there's a natural point where that bit will fall. It's, right. it's on a curve. Yeah. Uh, to get that done. So yeah, maybe it's done from the inside. I'm sure somebody in the audience knows, uh, or, or, you know, maybe there's a YouTube video like there is for everything else in the world, but, uh, Neil, good question. Uh, good luck with, uh, your drilled lugs. If it happens, let us know. And, and how, what, you know, what sort of a task it was. Uh, next up, we've got one from Mark who has a question about, uh, watches given as corporate gifts. Hi, Jason and James, longtime listener here, first time caller. Hey, I have a quick two part question for you guys on the topic of corporate watch giving. Uh, my company's generous enough in that they give you a watch following your 10 year tenure with the company, of which mine is coming up this year. Um, typically, the watch is a, Reuser, a Rolex uh, Oyster Perpetual range um, and is handed out in a ceremony at the end of the year holiday party. And usually, the recipient has no say into the type of watch. However, I might have pulled to shape parts of this policy and a bit and uh, request a different watch as I already have a Rolex. So uh, my question on this topic is for the policy for my company and really all companies, as I'm sure your listeners have the same thing. Um, do you think the person should have the option in the brand or type of watch? And two, um, do you think that the case back should be engraved with a company logo or anything like that? Uh, also, any suggestions of the watch um, that I could get would be appreciated. I like divers. I've been thinking in Everything in the range from like a Tudor Black Bay Bronze to a Brightly, Brightling Super Ocean Heritage and really anything in between. Thanks and enjoy the show. Wow, Mark, this is uh, this is really cool. I'm really happy to hear that companies are still doing this sort of thing. Um, yeah. I, I think we should do a TGN corporate watch uh, for all the employees. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, for like a episode 123 for sure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean... I, you know, I like, uh, like I said, I love that, that your company does this. Uh, you didn't mention anything about budget. Um, a, a Rolex Oyster Perpetual, I'm not sure what they're going for these between days. Between five and six. Yeah, so between five and six thousand uh, dollars. You know, there's, there's a lot of other good choice in that area. I do think that um, if it's a gift from a company, uh, you know, they could offer maybe three choices in the same price range rather than have. You know, employees kind of go willy-nilly, you know, requesting oddball choices. It might be easier to narrow it down to readily available watches. Um, and if there's a plan to engrave the case back, which I think is only fair if you're getting it from a uh, from a company as a gift that they should be able to, you know, brand it a little bit in, in an inconspicuous way. Um, that might be a consideration when choosing the watch, whether it is suitable for engraving. You know, some watches have so much writing or, or have a clear case back and not much room to engrave that... Uh, you know, something like a, a Tudor or a Rolex or something uh, with some space is, is actually a good idea. And I think Tudor is a really nice option. It's um, They have a lot of affordable watches in, in different kind of looks. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very classic brand. Uh, but, you know, certainly an Oyster Perpetual, a Tudor Black Bay, and say, I don't know, something a little dressier. I'm not sure, like uh, even something like a, a Beaumont Mercier or... Um, you know, or Raymond Weil or something along those lines for, for people that want something a little more classic and dressy looking might be, you know, three good choices and you just offer those to, to the employees. But, uh, um, I think, like I said, I think it's really cool, uh, that, that they're doing this and that you have some say in the matter. So, uh, we'd love to hear what you end up with. James, what do you think about this? Yeah, I think, um, I think it's interesting, you know, I think that because most, um, employees aren't going to be quote unquote watch nerds just by, simple demographics. I think it makes sense if they don't offer much in the way of choice. 
Um, and I, I think it's fun that they might offer you that. Maybe they know that you're very much into watches and, and they're comfortable with that. And that's that's another mark of a great company, not only making sure that you feel happy um, and, and appreciated on, on such a great mark as 10 years. That's fantastic. Um, but also that that maybe they, they know you and, and they're willing to bend a rule for you. I think on, on whole, if I was leading a company, I'd kind of like the idea that, you know, maybe, maybe there's, you know, when that, that night that that Christmas party, you get your OP, there's, you know, 20 or 30 or 40, I don't know how big your company is, but several other people who will come up to you and show you theirs. And, and it, it, the fact that they're all kind of the same is, is, is kind of, uh, like a badge of honor of, of some, of, uh, you know, similar nature with your coworkers, your other, you know, 10 year coworkers. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I could, I could kind of go either way on it. I definitely think it should have the company's logo on the back. That's special. This is a, a, a nice thing that I think a lot of companies don't do anymore and they should, they should absolutely be proud of it. And that includes engraving the, the case back. And as far as suggestions, I would, I'd be, I'd be with Jason. I'd, you know, if they offer something like the OP, a tutor, and maybe for someone going a little bit dressier, a Grand Seiko, mm-hmm. um, yeah. would be in the same price point, And they make some really beautiful dress watches that kind of run in the same aesthetic flexibility as an OP. Um, uh, and when we say OP, we're saying Oyster Perpetual for people who, who are tired of us saying that the short form, uh, a watch that they've just actually relaunched. So theoretically you could get, um, the new 36 millimeter, which comes in a couple really amazing colors. Uh, you know, just the, just the day before we recorded this, they launched, I think five or six new colors into the 36 size. Um, yeah, I, I, for sure. I think it's cool if they'll give you a choice and, and if, and if you're more comfortable with that than having the going with an OP, but I think it's also one of those things where you're basically immediately getting a watch that you're not going to sell. Uh, so it, it might be more, uh, it might be more kind of in line with the overall experience to go with what they've given others in the past. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I think kind of with that, I'd say follow your heart, but definitely get the logo or, and, and some sort of engraving on the back, whatever they normally do. Um, and then, yeah, as far as suggestions, I don't think you'd go wrong. I, I would probably at that price point lean towards either the OP and pick a dial that that kind of was in line with my liking or something like a black bay 58 if you could find one yeah great question yeah uh, super fun yeah felt very old-fashioned <laughs> yeah yeah i didn't i didn't realize yeah. companies are still doing that i, yeah. I think that's great uh, yeah. and especially you know it, it's not like it's uh uh not that i would i you know throw shade at a company for going with a less expensive watch but that kind of like classic yeah yeah rolex right like right, it's, it's, right. that's that's still a thing that's yeah. gonna be special to a lot of people yeah all right. Next up, we have a question from Travis who wants to know a little bit about how to vet a watchmaker. Hey, James and Jason. This is Travis calling from Northern Indiana. I love the podcast and your work, and I appreciate the time for my question. So I found there's no better cure for an expanding watch collection than paying brand factory service costs, but I'm willing to do it for the core expensive watches in my collection. I do have a few more affordable ones that have me scratching my head a little, though. Do you have any tips for sourcing a local watchmaker? Uh, what questions should be asked, say certifications, parts access, etc.? Or is it better to ship and use a multi-brand service center? Thanks. All right, Travis, thanks very much for that question. Um, I, I can hop in with a few thoughts. You know, if, if it's local, you need to start with what's around, right? Um, you know, maybe do a little survey, stop by a few of the shops or make some phone calls. Uh, I would be less concerned with 
training or, or certifications or something like that than how long they've been around. If they're brand new, ask for some concept of you know where they were trained and, and how they got to where they are. And then introduce your the watch in question to them and, and see how they feel about actually working on it. This is the same way where if you move to another city or, or want to switch garages for your car, you kind of start with the spots that, that are relatively comfortable with your brand. And, and move from there. Um, and, and then the other side of it is, of course, there's there's Google reviews, there's uh, Better Business Bureau. And so when, when you kind of narrow down your your options for where you might want to take it, um, ask your questions, you know, are you comfortable servicing this watch? Uh, if, if it needs parts, is that something that you're going to be able to get for me? Um, that also depend, you know, a lot on the watch, not just the, uh, the watchmaker in question. Uh, but yeah, look for a longstanding business, uh, the type of spot that uh, that seems to be successful in doing this for uh, for you know multiple generations which is not uncommon with jewelry stores and uh, and then just make sure that your um, your expectations align so like you're both on kind of the same page with what needs to be done to the watch if it's mechanical service only or, or something more aesthetic um, especially when you're starting that relationship they may not understand to what level your enthusiasm is uh, you know I, I you know even with places like Roldorf where they could service nearly anything, uh, within reason, a lot of what they do is like changing batteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, you know, there's there's some qualifying that both of you have to do, and you you qualifying yourself for the watchmaker, and the watchmaker qualifying the uh, his or herself to uh, to you. Uh, but I, I think that's where I would get started. And and otherwise, think of it like like picking a spot, you know, a garage for your car. Look up some reviews if you can. Ask a lot of questions. You know, try and get a feel for how busy they are. Busy is always a good sign, right? Um, I, I would kind of go that road if, and, and then if, if there isn't a good option locally, uh, then absolutely, uh, send it to, uh, to one of the bigger places or, or go on watch you seek and see what people are recommending for that brand of watch. Um, it's not that difficult, you know, to, uh, box a watch up and ship it to someone for service. Uh, maybe even easier than going to the store these days. Who knows? Yeah. I would just add two things. And one is, uh, you know, I get a pretty steady stream of direct messages on Instagram um, from people just asking for recommendations in the Twin Cities here, and uh, it, forums are also a good good place to ask. Uh, all you have to do is throw out a question and say, "Hey, uh, anybody based in Cincinnati or or you know Chicago or wherever, um, can you recommend a a good watchmaker?" And you'll you'll probably get a fair number of responses from from locals. The other thing yeah. I would add is that. You know, I don't think there's really a watchmaker that wants to get in over his or her head with an unfamiliar watch or brand. And I think watchmakers are usually pretty honest. They're not going to say, yeah, I can service that, you know, split seconds paddock chronograph. Uh, you know, th- th- that would be really disastrous for, for them, for you and for the watch. And so I think usually watchmakers are pretty honest about what they're willing to take on. And chances are that watchmaker can recommend somebody as well if, if they're not comfortable doing it. So uh, good question. Um, yeah, for sure. Next up is Matt, who has a question about tolerating imperfections. Hey, Jason and James. My name is Matt from Texas. I am a day one listener and truly appreciate what you guys do with this podcast. It is very much one of the best parts of my week. My question is regarding watch imperfections. How do you guys treat, say, a dive watch with a misaligned bezel or spotting some dust on your dial? Things like that. As someone who struggles with diagnosed OCD, I often find that I will fixate on these kinds of imperfections, and it very often takes all the fun out of this hobby I enjoy so much. Do you find that there are acceptable imperfections, maybe things that don't necessarily affect the function of the watch? 
curious of your individual takes, especially considering that a lot of watch buying currently is done online and watches are often purchased sight unseen and you may not know what you get until you actually receive it. Thanks for your time and I really look forward to your future work and appreciate everything you do again. Thanks. Thanks for that one, Matt. Uh, James, I think you and I are going to come down slightly differently on this one. I'm, I'm just guessing, but uh, wh- wh- where do you go with this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it depends on what it is. With something like a bezel, I'm not that concerned about it. It depends, I guess, on the extent to which it's not aligned. Uh, you know, the normal misalignment of a Seiko SKX has never bothered me. I know it's something that people, it, it definitely bothers a lot of people. It, it doesn't at all for me. And then even though the bezel on my SPB is off by a small, a small, a tiny fraction of, of a, you know, maybe a quarter of a click. Um, it, it just doesn't bother me that much. Uh, that said, if it w- if there's dust on the dial, I, that would bother me endlessly. Um, <laughs> I would, I would, I would want someone to, uh, to get, get that off the dial certainly. Uh, so it would depend on in this case, uh, what, so I don't see them. I, I could see the, the, the bezel as something like an imperfection or a, a quality control, uh, thing that that would require some sort of actual modification to fix, but something like um, like taking the like like getting dust off the dial is something that a, a competent watchmaker can do for you. That's not something you have to live with. And certainly, if I got if I bought a new watch uh, from a from a normal re, from a retailer and it had dust on the dial, that would be something we I would sort out with that retailer. That would uh, that would bother me a lot. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Um, yeah, I think I'm actually surprised. You you tend to be a little more um, uh, persnickety about uh, things like audio quality and and photo editing and things. So I thought you were going to come down a little more on the uh, on the perfectionist side of this one. But I think we're we're pretty close. Um, I think I could also live with something like a, a slightly misaligned bezel, or even you know sometimes you'll you'll notice that loom isn't perfectly or evenly applied on on all the markers in the hands. I can live with that sort of thing. I think if a chronograph didn't zero out when you reset it, or uh, I've had a situation where you know timekeeping was just way out of whack, you know, right out of the box, mm-hmm. I'll contact customer service and send it back. But uh, um, I'm I'm willing to tolerate uh, some some smaller things. But you know, look uh, the, at the price that watches are going for these days. If you get something and you're not completely happy with it, uh, by all means, I, I say, you know, get in touch. And and the mark of a good watch brand or retailer is is how they treat you after you buy the product and i think uh, most brands are pretty good about it so i would i would encourage you to get in touch if it's something that that uh, kind of tweaks you a little bit so good question matt and uh, good luck with uh, whatever imperfections you're currently trying to uh, <laughs> uh trying to deal with along the road there uh next up we have a question from evan uh about uh, case materials jason james this is evan your terrific one on instagram Let's talk about new case materials. I've owned or borrowed watches made of ceramic, carbon, and advanced polymer. They each have their own benefits and deficits, and I'd like to get your take on these materials, their durability, longevity, and whether you think some of these things are just passing fads. Thanks, my dudes. All right, Evan, thanks very much for that question. For anyone listening, uh, Evan is a fantastic Instagram follow, uh, killer watch photographer, great taste uh, in uh, sports watches, certainly. That's what, that's what you're going to see a lot of, but he, I've, I've followed Evan for quite some time, and uh, it's, a, it's a treat to have him call in with a question. Uh, Jason, any specific thoughts on any of those materials? Have you owned any watches of ceramic, carbon, or polymer? I have built? not. I haven't owned them. I've uh, my, my limited experience comes from reviewing... 
mm-hmm. specifically uh, a couple of AP divers, the, the Royal Oak Offshore divers in both uh, the ceramic and the carbon, um, which, you know, isn't definitely a long-term test, but uh, I was impressed mm-hmm. by the, the feel of them and the weight on the wrist and the finishing. Um, they're obviously very scratch resistant and light. I mean, advances in case materials is, is something that goes hand in hand with the development of, of watchmaking, just as materials get used, uh, in, uh, automobile design and things like this. Uh, I think the concerns about durability or shattering that you often hear when it comes to say a, a carbon or a ceramic watch, I, I feel like those are largely unfounded. You know, you might see a random photo of somebody, Oh, I dropped my IWC and it shattered. Well, um, you know, the way most people wear their luxury watches they're probably not dropping them a lot. They're probably careful with them anyway. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're going into situations where you're banging your watch around a lot, maybe not a good option to go with one of these uh, more shattering uh, materials. But I think you know luxury watches by their nature tend to be uh, fairly fragile, and also and for that reason, people treat them pretty well. So uh, unless you're really really hard on your watch, I think they'll last as long as a, a good steel or titanium watch. But um, in, in terms of my personal preference, I'm a metal guy. I like steel. I like titanium. I could go for a bronze watch or, or someday maybe a gold watch. But, uh, you know, I think it's cool to see these new materials and, and I don't really have any particular qualms about them. Yeah. In in my scenario, I, you know, I've, I've had, uh, I've reviewed watches in, in all three. I've not owned any of them long enough to put them through any real abuse, right? These are loaners. Um, but when it comes to ceramic, it, it's not a material that speaks really well to me. I find it typically quite shiny, um, kind of glassy, which I understand is the effect that they're going for. But I definitely don't think, especially when it comes to ceramic, that we're seeing a trend. I think that ceramic is relatively here to stay. You know, it's a material, the, the, the watch industry likes the idea that they're selling you something that won't age. Um, and and I, think, I think your only real risk, like, like Jason highlighted, is that if you were to hit ceramic hard enough, it will break. Uh, in a way that like a metal, like steel won't, uh, you know, I, I, I think a lot of us have probably seen, and this is maybe what Jason was referring to the, the guy that dropped his dark side of the moon and just kind of broke a lug off the side of it. Um, that's obviously going to be a real bad day for anyone that that happens to. But if you drop a steel watch, uh, you may not break a lug off, but other things can break. Certainly, uh, the case will probably be okay. And then as far as my my experience with carbon and then polymer, which of course is, you know, typically a, some sort of advanced plastic, um, the only thing that I've ever seen brought up and it's anecdotal is, you know, essentially the edge retention, the retention of, of kind of milled edges in, in both materials because a carbon fiber um, watch or a carbon composite watch is going to have a lot of plastic in it. That That's going to be the the resin or the the, the kind of, um, more at one point liquidy element that that kind of holds everything together. Obviously, there's exceptions to that. There's there's watches that have used layup carbon fiber, so it's more of a closer to what's used in a vehicle. Um, but I think those those materials have proven to be fairly hard wearing and lightweight and strong. Um, as far as how they deal with like years of UV, I'm not sure. And how they would deal with, you know, years of a sleeve rubbing against some of the harder edges. You, you, you can actually find watches where, uh, Jason, what's the Omega Speedmaster, the Mark IIs? 
Oh yeah, uh, the old Mark IIs. You can actually tell which wrist the person wore it on huh. because you can see that half of the watch will have that radial brushed finish will be gone from the sleeve. Hmm. So that's that's how little like a, you don't think a sleeve is hurting your watch at all. But give it a decade or give it fifteen years on your wrist. And and Evan, your question's a good one, but it's one that I, I don't really have an answer to at a fifteen year scale. It seems like ceramics here to stay. It's super tough. Uh, obviously, it's mega scratch resistant. And and my guess is we'll see brands deliver on that at higher and lower levels of success if you imagine the difference between pvd from a very cheap watch it, it could flake off with your fingernail and then there's pvd that that is absolutely harder wearing and better in finish than dlc it just it's much more expensive to iterate at that level uh, and i think we'll see the same thing with everything from the very nebulous term of like a polymer or, or a, a, some sort of a plastic watch uh, you know, Breitling does a great job with their bright light, but we've also seen uh, nylon watches and, and polymer watches from entry level Victorinox and uh, and Marathon and things like that. So I think all of this comes in at different different wavelengths. And I, and I think we won't be able to say like all ceramic is great or all carbon is great or all polymer is great. I think there'll be varying degrees of success uh, based on on kind of how much care is given into the material. And uh while I don't think any of it's necessarily a trend, I think there's always kind of been a push to try other case materials, aluminum to titanium to whatever. Um, I do think that it, it's always going to be hard to beat steel, uh, for especially for a sport watch. So yeah. I think that's probably where I land on it. If I if I get a chance to ever own something like that, you know, especially like the, I would have loved to have owned that carbon doxa. Uh, it is interesting to think, uh, you know, to try and predict how that material will wear over a 10 or 15 or 20 year span compared to steel. Yeah. Well, thanks, Evan, for that. Let's move on to Tom, who has a question about uh, taking a knife backpacking. G'day, man. Tom from Melbourne, Australia. Uh, love the show. Um, getting my backpack ready for hiking season. Um, got everything ready to go, but I do need a folding knife slash camping knife. Um, I know Stacey's got a few ideas up his sleeve probably. Um, what's good, what a nice blade, something durable, something that's going to last. Got about 100 US or 150 AUD to spend. Um, keep up the good work. Love the Q&As too. Thanks for that, Tom. Uh, James, this is your area for sure, but I'm just going to throw in my vote for one of the simpler uh, multi-tool style Swiss Army knives just for the additional tools that you get with it. But uh, James, why don't you take it on? From here yeah actually it, it's funny it's funny i was i was gonna say the same thing you know um get uh, the starting point for a camping knife should always be a multi-tool i actually think you kind of need both in many cases i think a, a swiss army knife is a great option you're not going to find that blade the actual cutting blade to be you know tough enough to say uh, tap into a big piece of wood with a hammer or the back of a hatchet or something like that but uh they do make a beautiful knife and they're easily found you know, any mall will have some place that sells Swiss Army knives. And uh, you don't need all the tools, but it's awfully handy to have a few of them uh, in those scenarios. The other thing that I think is, is great and we don't talk about a lot um, is a, like Leatherman. Yeah. Uh, like a proper sturdy, uh, you know, one of the Wave series are great. Um, the uh, th- They make so many, you kind of have to go on and use the, the filter on their website to understand what differentiates one from the other. The wingman is the one that, that I always see recommended. <laughs> but even then, I think there's a few versions of it. Uh, I, I think if you're, unless you're a knife guy specifically, that might be the way to go. And if you're saying, oh, but I have a little toolkit that I carry with me when I'm doing these things, and I really just want 
a proper pocket knife, uh, then I would say don't 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 sweat the details. Get yourself either a Benchmade five five six, so that's the mini griptilian, that's under a hundred dollars, um, or look for a comparable model from Spider Co. Two fantastic brands. Neither one will ever let you down. Both of them use great steels. I, I'm a Benchmade guy, especially I really like the Axis Lock. Um, but that's not to hold anything back from um, Spyderco Alcyon. Uh, these these things are about a hundred bucks, or I mean, you can get Benchmates for less than that. The five five six, I think I paid maybe eighty bucks Canadian, so that's in the range more like sixty dollars US, uh, and and was a great knife until I lost it to TSA. And if I hadn't, I would still be using it. Two of my brothers carry the same five five six, you know, model. You can get it in a half serrated blade. I think that's the five five six S, which is what I had. Uh, it comes in different colors. You can customize it on their website, the rest of that. I'm, I'm a huge Benchmade fan. I've had Spydercos in the past, and they're awesome as well. There's just something about the, um, I like a thumb stud versus the kind of hole, which is kind of characterized by Spyderco. And uh, and I really like their Axis Lock, uh, which makes it super handy to use with one hand uh, as a tool knife. So that's what I would suggest. And uh, Tom, thanks very much for the question, and uh, happy camping for sure. Next up is Sean, who has a, a question about double-wristing watches. Hi, James. Jason. It's Sean from the UK. I have a quick question about double-wristing. Um, obviously, Jack does it from Hadinki, but I rarely see anyone else do it, and despite trying many times, I haven't been able to get up the nerve to do it at all. And recently... I found the Apple Watch almost indispensable for losing my lockdown weight and getting fitter. What would you suggest um, is the solution for wearing a mechanical watch you really love and also an Apple Watch? And I'll be honest, I'm not really expecting an answer because I'm not actually sure that there is one. Anyway, thanks for the podcast. Keep up the good work. All right, Sean, thanks very much for that question. And as far as double wristing, you know, I've, I've done it where I had maybe two watches that I had to shoot while going somewhere. So I had one on each wrist instead of having them in a case or something. But but in an actual like casual wearing scenario, it's not something that I'm I'm really going to be able to pull off uh, two watches at once. Uh, I do I do think and, and I did this for a while is you can obviously you may be tied specifically to some of the metrics from the Apple watch, but there are other fitness trackers which you could wear on the same wrist as your watch or on the other wrist that aren't watches. You know, things from Fitbit, things from um, uh, Samsung makes these get the Galaxy Gear Fit, I think, or the these smaller sort of band style ones. Uh, Xiaomi makes, uh, I think they're up to the Mi Band 5. I had a Mi Band 3 back in the day, which is a great way to you know track your steps and uh, get some notifications from your phone and that kind of thing. So I think it, it comes down to, do you specifically need the functionality in the Apple Watch, in which case... Uh, I'm, I'm not really sure what to tell you. If, if you're not really happy with it on one wrist, I've seen straps that put both of them on the same strap. So you'd have the Apple Watch on the underside of your wrist and your mechanical watch on the top. That seems like a gimmick to me. Uh, but far be it from me to you know be any sort of arbiter to what people should or shouldn't be wearing. Whatever makes you happy, really. Uh, that's the point of these things. And, and certainly if you're finding especially health value from your from your uh, Apple Watch, I, I would hate to uh, to say anything that would cause you to not put it on if it was keeping you healthy during a time when you know health has become pretty paramount uh, in in people's lives, uh, both mental and physical. Uh, Jason, what do you think for this? Have you seen uh, Have you seen any any options or well? We, uh, we feel about double wristing. 
couple things come to mind. First of all, I, it feels extremely awkward when I've done it in the past. And like you, when I've gone on, you know, to, to shoot a watch or I'm traveling or, or headed somewhere and I have to have two watches, I'll, I'll do it for convenience. And it, it feels so wrong. And then also like going diving, I always wear like a, in, this, mm-hmm. in these days, a dive computer, my Garmin dive computer on my right wrist and, and the mechanical dive watch on my left wrist and in that case it feels okay the the dive computer is kind of big and plasticky and light and has a super long strap on it so it it doesn't feel like i'm wearing two watches but in in everyday wear i think i definitely could not pull that off the the two suggestions i have are um, take a look at i'm not sure what your favorite mechanical watch is and whether you wear it on a bracelet or not but um, there are a few gadgets that I think attach to the underside of of the strap. James, you you briefly touched on it, but I know Mont Blanc had something that you could fit onto a, a strap, and I think Sin came up with something that you could wear on the underside of your wrist uh, to to kind of counterbalance the mechanical watch on the other side. And then there was a a brand, and I can't remember the name, but we'll put it in the show notes if I can ever find it. It was a little disc that would sandwich or, or oh, adhere yeah. what to was the, that called? It would adhere to the case back of your watch uh, and it would ride against your wrist under your mechanical watch and it could give you notifications and tie to your phone. And I'm not sure if it had heart rate sensing, but it definitely tracked your activities. Um, I want to say it was called something like the Kronos. Yeah, the Kronos wearable. Yeah, the yep. Kronos wearable. Um, I'm not sure if they're still making that. Um, but uh, uh, it, was, it says limited quantities available. But yeah, it's kind of a disc that clicks onto your case back and does says fitness tracking, music control, notification alerts, and tap to find your iPhone. Yeah, there we go. So if that's something that appeals, if if you're not tied to your your Apple Watch, like James said, you know maybe one of these add-on options is, is a another option or another idea for you. But uh, the other thing is, you know, during this time when we're when we're home, I, I found it kind of interesting to find ways to um, segregate your day, kind of break your day up into what feels like a work day and then not. Yeah. And and maybe pick one watch for one phase and the Apple Watch for the other. So if you like the Apple Watch for your letting you know when you're supposed to be on your next meeting or you're uh, maybe going on a walk over lunch and getting your steps in and you know completing the circles and all that kind of thing, then maybe wear that. And then when dinner time comes along and you're done the watch the work day, throw on something you know a, a nice watch and kind of enjoy your evening in sort of a different methodology. Yeah, which might might work, and that way you'd get both in without having to do both on the same uh, two wrists. Yeah. Okay, good luck with that, uh, Sean. Um, it's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Next up is Stefan, who has a question about uh, wearing kind of themed watches. Hi, James and Jason. This is Stefan from Chicago. I'm a huge fan of the work you both do and a longtime TGM listener. What are your thoughts on the myriad of themed watch releases we see each year? Some commemorate sports events, some focus on movies, some are in support of very good causes, while others are military-themed tributes, to name a few. Do you think you need to have a close association with one of these events, causes or units to justify such a purchase? Thanks so much for all you guys do, and I look forward to your thoughts. Cheers. So, Stefan, uh, I'll jump in first here. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm kind of split on this one. I've, I'm not a huge fan of kind of watches that are tied specifically to, you know, a movie, you know, the, the James Bond tie-in stuff or a sports team. I know Tissot was doing a range of NBA watches. Um, but I have also owned watches that are kind of co-branded or tie in with a specific event or project. Uh, I can think specifically about my old Mission 31 Doxa 
that uh, recently uh, was raffled off for something like $7,000 to raise money uh, for Big Brothers Big Sisters through Analog Shift, which is really cool. Um, And I also owned the the Breitling Emergency Orbiter uh, Special Edition. Um, And I've got a Poseidon uh, Doxa as well. So, you know, of those, I think the one the one that didn't stick uh, specifically uh, was the Breitling Orbiter. Um, while I love the old Breitling Emergencies, I had no connection at all with the, the Orbiter uh, mission that uh, Bertrand Picard, and I can't think of the other guy's name, but they, they took a balloon around the world, and it was this momentous uh, adventure that they completed. But... I, I really just wanted the watch. I didn't need the logo on the dial. Um, and it just mm-hmm. didn't stick. Uh, Mission 31, I was able to dive to the Aquarius habitat. Uh, I had met Fabian Cousteau. I had some some real connection there. Uh, I have some Poseidon dive gear. So a, a co-branded Poseidon Doxa kind of made sense to me. Um, but in general, if, if there's sort of a more tenuous tie-in that I don't have a personal connection with, uh, I'm just not that interested and it doesn't stick with me. Uh, how about you, James? Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, when it comes to certainly something like movies, it's a hard no. Uh, that I've never, I've never seen that as a value add for me. Uh, sports teams, the same way. Even if you, even if I like, um, if you think of like, if you made a, a version of a watch, an existing watch for someone I really loved, uh, um, an athlete or, or anyone, you know, like let's say a, a Ed Vester's did an Ed Vester's edition Rolex, that would be cheesy to me. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Ed Vesters is there because he was wearing a Rolex when he did his things. He wasn't wearing one with his name on it. Yeah. You know what I mean? A lot of it is is so um, kind of cat eating or a snake eating its own tail in many ways. Um, I would say that I, it bothers me less when it's um, it's in addition to a watch that's maybe already great versus what's attempting to make the watch great. So if it's a watch that's Star Wars themed and, and that's kind of the way you would explain, you'd be like, oh, well, this watch is... It has a, a a design that's based on Star Wars, or or they made fifty of them for this or that. Like I've already stopped listening. Um, <laughs> but it but it but if it's like an add on where oh you've got this great watch that also supports this movement, it could be that Blanc Pont Bathyscaphe uh, Macaran that we spoke about on a previous episode, or uh, really no brand else is better than Oris. They take an already great watch, they change the color to make it special, they make it a limited edition, and they put it on the case back. And I think as something that you might get to say in the third or the fourth sentence of talking about this watch with a friend versus the thing that's the fourth word Mm. of the first sentence uh, makes a lot of sense. So I really like the ones that are kind of a collaboration with a project or even could be a cross collaboration with another brand. Those are fun. Like dual sign dials can be really fun. Uh, But ones that are that are meant to connect to something that's not watch, that's not really watch, even watch adjacent. I don't get it all. I don't understand where it's a, another car brand and I adore cars, but like a Panerai, you know, a Panerai Ferrari model or the Gerard Perigo Ferrari models. I look at those and I go like, oh, that's that's cool that they made it. But honestly, it's cooler if it doesn't say Ferrari on the dial. Yeah. Um, so it has to add in some way to the watch. And typically, as soon as you start changing the dial and, and like, look, at imagine uh, the blasphemy of my next sentence. I'd like, I'm not even that crazy about the doxes that have us divers on them. Mm-hmm. I prefer them without it. It wouldn't stop me from getting one. If I, if that was the model that was within my reach, it, it's not like it, it doesn't take away from the watch, but it adds nothing for me. I like a watch in its plain form. 
um, that the, when, you, when, you, when you get into, you know, oh, the seven marker on this one is 007 because it's a James <laughs> Bond thing, I start to go like, couldn't I just buy a normal Omega? Yeah. Like what right. Bond would wear? Right. Um, you know, Bond wouldn't wear the Bond one. It just wouldn't. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't think that anyone outside of a factory driver for Aston Martin wears a watch that has Aston Martin on the dial. You know what I mean? So it's, it's just kind of, uh, it's, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's like, uh, I, I, I like it when it's, it's, it's the way that like Oris approaches them. I think that's like genuine and interesting and, and it, it spreads what the watch world can be about into other spaces versus just kind of putting a, yeah, putting a, a, a movie on a dial or a, a comic book character or something doesn't really speak to me. Even Snoopy, which I, I understand the background of some of that stuff. I, I, I look at those and I go like, yeah, but the one without Snoopy's cooler. Yeah. Good topic. I like that. Yeah, that's that's how I see it. And I know that, that, that I'm sure that there's people in, in the audience that are going to be, you know, in complete disagreement. Um, but uh, Stefan, I, I appreciate the question. And uh, and that's yeah, that's where I land on it. I, I like it in some scenarios, but for the most part, I, 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 I seldom see how it adds to the general appeal of an already good watch. So next up, we have a question from Victoria, who's asking um, basically for some watch suggestions of a, a quote unquote men's watch that will work on her wrist. Hey, James and Jason. I'm Victoria from Washington, D.C. I love your show. Thank you for having me. I prefer the size and design of men's watches to women's, and I currently sort of borrow my husband's Zodiac Super Seawolf GMT Ellie Hodinkee. It has a blue and sea green bezel, which makes it somewhat cute, but my question is, what is a men's watch that is feminine enough for a woman? I usually wear his watches on a NATO strap, but I would prefer one where I can be comfortable wearing the bracelet. I'm in the market for something with a light color dial, automatic, roughly 38 to 42 millimeters. Do you have any recommendations? Thank you again so much, Victoria. Well, thanks for that, Victoria. Um, funny, you know, this question comes up. My, my wife is kind of in a similar boat. She always liked dive watches, and this was several years ago. She was looking at my old Planet Ocean and kind of lusting after it, but it was the 45 millimeter version, and she was just frustrated that there weren't any similarly styled watches for, for women that she could wear. Um, and then along came the, the 37 and a half millimeter Planet Ocean chronograph. This was, gosh, 2009 or so. Uh, on a bracelet, and uh, and she's worn it ever since and just loves that watch. And I think over the past few years, we've seen more, um, less of the kind of the shrink it and pink it kind of mentality of um, making women's watches with, you know, certain colors or diamonds um, and, and kind of making more unisex watches. And I think, you know, Breitling's done a good a good job of that with um, like their Navitimer, uh, uh, which I think is a really neat watch. They make a blue dial version and, and some others as well that aren't the chronograph, but they're actually the, the Navitimer just time only with the uh, slide rule, which is one you could look at. Um, the Doxa Sub 300 C Rambler, so with a silver dial, or I guess now they've got you know several dial colors. We discussed it uh, last week in in the episode. Um, those watches wear surprisingly well on smaller wrists. Mm-hmm. My wife wears my Sub 300 quite a bit, and it looks just fine on her. And and despite its, uh, I think on paper they say it's like 44 millimeters across, but it's it's very much like a round or almost square shape that that fits a wide variety of wrists. Um, I think, you know, the range you suggested, 38 to 42, is, is quite a big range, and there are a lot of watches in this area. I think what threw me was your request for a lighter colored dial, which narrows the field a little bit more. Um, you know, there, I, I was looking up the, the Rado Captain Cook, and they make a, they still make the 37 millimeter size, and they have a, an all-silver version, which is kind of intriguing and, and actually comes on a bracelet if you want. 
Um, we, we discussed the, the Rolex Oyster Perpetual, of course. They've just introduced the 41 millimeter version, um, but there's also the 36 millimeter version. Um, if you want something more on the affordable side, and depending on how you feel about the, the Seagull movements, uh, Laurier, one of the brands that we like here on, on TGN, makes the, the Gemini, which is a really neat kind of retro two-register panda-style chronograph with a 12-hour bezel that I believe is about 37 or 38 millimeters. Um, and then Omega makes still makes a 37 millimeter Planet Ocean in a variety of, of colors and, and, and configurations that you could take a look at there too. So um, I would say spoiled for choice. Um, and if you expand even beyond light colored dials, there there's a lot more out there. James, any ideas uh, spring to mind? Yeah, for sure. I think Diver 65 comes in tons of different colors, including a silver dial from a couple years back. Uh, so that's always an option and one that we always throw out there. Great value. I agree with um, the sub 300. Uh, you know, there are there are various versions of the uh, Tudor Black Bay. Uh, not all of them the dive watches, just the, you know, the blue dial is quite lovely in the Black Bay. I don't, I don't know if that necessarily counts as a, a bright uh, or certainly off uh, in a white sense. Uh, if you have the budget, I, I couldn't I couldn't say enough nice things about uh, sixteen five seventy Explorer twos in white, the polar dial. I have one, I adore it. It's my favorite Rolex. It's about thirty nine millimeters. It wears like forty, I think is fair, uh, and it sits nice and low. And you're you're not going to get a brighter dial for sure. And finally, I would say dig dig up a Halio Seaforth. He made them in tons of different colors, uh, at least three generations plus a GMT. Uh, they're available on the market. I think the pricing has cooled in many ways on those back to, you know, sort of a normal Halios always does well aftermarket, but with some of them, uh, when they would launch, there'd be an extra kind of value attached to them because people had missed their chance to pre-order. And then as far as new watches, you know, it's always worth keeping an eye on brands like Halios. Uh, Scurfa does some light dial watches as well and yellow and, and, and that sort of thing. I think, yeah, like Jason said, there's kind of a ton out there. Um, you just kind of have to sort through the stuff that doesn't align directly with your normal black dial dive watch. Uh, you know, it sounds like you're enjoying the, you know, the big pop of color you get from that Zodiac, which, uh, I certainly can't blame you. Those are really fun. Uh, but in my mind, yeah, I'd be looking at a, a diver 65 or an Explorer two, if that's within the budget range and you can, you can track one down. Uh, yeah, some great stuff. Uh, be sure to let us know what you end up getting Victoria. We're excited to, uh, to hear what you what you find and what what you think kind of suits your wrist after uh, after the hunt uh, comes to some sort of uh, fruition there. Uh, next up, we have a question from uh, a fellow named James about uh, peaking to Paris. G'day, Jason and James. James here from Melbourne, Australia. Love your Greynado podcast. Whilst it's watches that drew me here, it's really average Joe achievable adventure stories that resonate with me and inspire me. I also love the interviews that you guys do from time to time. Jason's interview with Nims and James's interview with Corey Richards are a couple that really stood out for me. Keep up the great work, guys. Anyway, my question for you is uh, on behalf of a friend of mine. Anyway, this friend is participating in the 2022 Peking to Paris Motor Challenge, an event that I'm sure James and probably Jason as well is uh, familiar with. For those in your audience who aren't familiar with the event, it's basically a self, uh, it's a month-long self-supported rally driving vintage cars halfway across the globe from Peking, uh, now known as Beijing, to Paris. 
Understandably, with such an event, there's quite a lot of logistical planning involved, and my friend has entrusted in me what is undoubtedly the most important part of the planning, choosing an appropriate wristwatch. His criteria include the following. The watch must be robust. It must have a decent waterproofness. Let's say about 100 metres, but we don't have to be a stickler on that one. Around about 42 millimetres in size, and the price range is up to 600 Australian dollars. But so we don't get too hung up on exchange rates. Let's say 600 US. We can push him if we need to, I guess. He's a bit of a watch guy without being a nut like most of the uh, listeners in the audience today. Um, he has in his collection a Breitling Super Ocean Chrono and a Tag Heuer Monaco. I've already considered various Seiko dive watches, including SKX, Turtles, Arnie's, the usual suspects there. Also CWC's, Mark II Paradive, Bold Adventure, Marathons and G-Shocks. Anyway guys, I'd be interested to know what your recommendations would be, whether it's one of those watches I've already listed, or if there's any other options that I might have missed, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks in advance for considering my question. And oh yeah, on behalf of all of the Aussies in your audience, I think it's awesome that you both rock a pair of bunnies. Great work, guys. Look forward to the next show. Cheers. All right, thanks very much for that question, James. And wow, what an adventure! Wouldn't that wouldn't that be a thing, uh, Jason? Oh, peaking to Paris to in that. a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, that's a it's a proper thing. And for anyone uh, not not quite sure, uh, you know, the, the kind of how it works, look up some stories. I think we've even included some in final notes in the past. Uh, but it is just uh, middle of nowhere racing. Um, you know, it's stage is big, st- big rally stage racing, and it's uh, it, it looks like such a blast. And all sorts of different vehicles show up, and brands and privateers, and, and the rest of it. I think it's uh, it's super fun. And as far as a watch, uh, anything jump to mind, Jason? Well, you know, he mentioned a few different ideas, and and I'm inclined to go the quartz route for this. I think the I last thing you want to do, or the last thing you want to worry about when you're doing something like this is your watch. I mean, this is like climbing a mountain or doing an ultra marathon, except you have the very hard edges and, and, and unforgiving nature of working on a car, like lying on your back in the mud, replacing a prop shaft or something. You, you just don't want to have to worry about a mechanical watch getting bashed. Um, I like the price range, you know, 600 bucks is, is about right. You could probably go cheaper if you went with something from Seiko, but I, I think the Safarni would be a good choice. Uh, you know, solar, you've got second time zone, you've got alarms, uh, good loom, uh, pretty indestructible. I think, uh, you know, like a marathon T-SAR, the, yep. the tritium SAR battery powered, you know, pretty bomb proof watch with a big chunky bezel. Uh, I'm uh, on record many times as being a real fan of the CWC quartz divers. Maybe a little on the expensive side, but uh, they haven't let me down. And 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 kind of a, a low profile, bomb proof kind of uh, quartz piece. Um, yeah, I, I think that's kind of the the route to go. I think this is one of those situations where, okay, you want a companion, you want a timepiece, you want something to to function, but you also don't want something you even have to think about. And I think a, a mechanical watch is just too it's too fragile for this sort of thing. It's not just skiing or climbing or hiking. It's uh, you know you're you're fiddling around under the under the hood of a car or underneath a car, yeah. banging things around. And uh, I think quartz is the way to go or solar. But uh, yeah. any any other ideas? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a few. If you're willing, if he's willing to go digital, it sounds like he already has a couple of really nice watches. So maybe a simple digital watch would be a nice way to remember it. It could be beat up, and the scars would look really cool on a something like a um, uh, you know a Casio Rangeman. 
is a great option. Uh, the We've talked at length about Garmin Instincts, mm-hmm. which I think would be basically perfect for this application, especially depending on what you're already using in the truck for navigation, because it's quite possible it's also Garmin and might have some sort of uh, connected ability uh, with the watch and, and its ability. And so I think you go well with any Garmin, but certainly the Instinct feels like just about right for this, doesn't weigh anything. I don't think you'd really sweat it if you had to stick both arms into a, you know, a cramped wheel well or something to, to free up some rocks or some mud or, or into an engine bay that where you might, you know, scratch pretty, pretty hard, hard to scratch something else. And beyond that, like I said, I think a a Casio arrangement would be just about perfect. I I used to like having those because it was easy to wear on the outside of, of my jacket. Um, I had great big buttons for gloves and uh, a great screen, tons of battery life, the rest of it. And then if, if you really want something, um, you know, analog, I, I would take a look at Victorinox's Inox line. Mm, yeah. Uh, they make them in diver and non-diver. I think they're super handsome. They're also specifically made to be almost indestructible. Uh, they come in quartz. They come in automatic as well, which you can go for. I think the, the, the automatic one, they forego a couple of the tests, including the thrown out of a three-story window. Uh, but the quartz ones can be run over by a tank and can survive a certain amount of heat for a certain amount of time. And I think they're a nice looking watch. It doesn't get spoken about a lot simply because like Victorinox is this kind of, they sit on an overlap between being a bit of a mall brand and an enthusiast brand. And uh, and the Inox stuff is really, really nice. It's super tough. You can get one with a bezel, like a dive watch style one. I assume in this scenario, size isn't going to be a, a huge issue, but they make them in a few different sizes. Uh, and that would be my suggestion. Go with something really tough and then, you know, go with something that's not so dear. And certainly your price point's helpful at this point, but go with something that's not so dear that when you get home from doing Peking to Paris, it can become kind of a, uh, a little trophy on your desk. You take off your just your chewed up Garmin or your Casio or your Victorinox or your CWC and you put it on a nice little stand that says, you know, Peking to Paris 2020. Uh, and, 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 it, and it becomes kind of a nice little memento that you maybe take the next time you do Peking to Paris or some other race in, in, in the same sort of um, guys. That, that's how I would think about it. Yeah, I love that. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of Victorinox. I'm glad you brought that one up. And I think it uh, might be a little out of the price range, but, but the, if you get the carbon version, you can then report back to us and, and to Evan about how that carbon held up, given his uh, question. Yeah, about for sure. Materials. <laughs> it really is. A, it's, a, it's an interesting line of watches that I've, I never see them in. Yeah. Um, in the public, yeah, but they are. It, it, especially for anyone who doesn't know the watch I'm talking about, go read a couple reviews. I'll, I'll try and dig up what, what I've got. But you know, they make these incredibly difficult to kill watches, almost uh, almost because that's like the design brief. They're like, let's make something that's really hard to kill. And I'm I'm seeing you know the standard 43 millimeter uh, in a steel case. Uh, with a, a simple uh, you know quartz movement, and it you know it has to withstand 130 extreme endurance homologation tests. Uh, you know, it, it's only 13 millimeters thick. It's like I said, it's a quartz movement. It comes on a, a black rubber strap. It's 575 Canadian, which puts it in the 400 range. Perfect. Uh, Mid low 400. So I think you definitely be able to hit your 600 AUD uh, price point with a, with a set of these. And by all accounts, certainly Victorinox is and otherwise they are you know they're built like a peaking to Paris truck for sure. They're yeah. gonna they're gonna go the miles. So that sounds super fun, James. Keep us posted on uh, how that goes, and and if if it ends up uh, you know closer to twenty twenty two when if we can follow along and see how your buddy progresses, please send the link to uh, the great NATO at gmail dot com. Uh, next up, we've got a, a question from a guy named JD about uh, smaller size watches. Hey guys, this is JD in Denver, Colorado. 
Just listening to your episode 117, Summary DC, and enjoying uh, your conversation about divers around the 40 millimeter range, much more reasonable size for a lot of people. I uh, recently read that uh, the classic Rolex GMT Master, I think it might be reference 1675 from decades ago, uh, measures out at 38 millimeters by 45 or so lug to lug and 11 thick. So I just wanted to ask you guys, that seems like such a great size, and of course people love that watch for a lot of other reasons, but is there a reason that manufacturers aren't actually chasing uh, such a pragmatic and uh, well-regarded sized sport watch like that these days? Will it be impossible for them to get from 40 to 41 to 38 to 40? Love to hear your thoughts on it. Thanks. Keep up the great job. Well, I, I actually think manufacturers are headed in that direction. I think we're seeing, uh, we're, we're kind of entering a new golden age of, of well-sized sports watches. Uh, you know, the, the Black Bay 58, the, you know, Rolex has is, is always made pretty reasonably sized watches. Uh, Sin, you can still find some really nice uh, smaller watches. Um, Seiko tends to be on the, on the larger size, but they make, you know, a full range. Um, I, I would say the era of the giant watch is, you know, uh, certainly not passed for good. I'm sure, you know, these things come in waves and I'm sure we'll see big giant, you know, 45 millimeter divers again in another 10 years or so. But uh, I think we're kind of kind of going through another smaller watch phase, not not necessarily small, but, you know, the size you, you reference, the 38 to, to 40 uh, size range. I think we're, we're seeing so many watches coming back in that uh, in that kind of area. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to see it. You know, I'm a big guy and I've got a couple of big watches personally, but, um, I'm with you. I think, I think reasonably sized watches just work so well and are just so classic. Uh, James, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I would agree. And I actually, JD, I would say that there's tons of options right now for under 40 millimeters, especially if you're talking 38 to 40, think of, uh, you know, the standard Rolex Explorer, Right now, the 114270 is 39 millimeters and, and maybe maybe a millimeter and a half longer lug to lug than the uh, the 1675 that you referenced. The Tudor Black Bay, like Jason mentioned, comes in the 58, which is a 39 millimeter sizing. Uh, Panerai makes a 38 millimeter version of the Luminor, the Luminor Due. Uh, that's a watch that you know eight years ago would have been 45 millimeters, right? Uh, you can get an Aquaterra at 38 millimeters, which is a fantastic watch. Uh, Breitling makes a 38 millimeter Navitimer one, which is what Jason was referencing, uh, I believe, in the, the the question from Victoria earlier. And then you can even find, you know, slightly more dressier stuff. Seiko, uh, Grand Seiko has options at 39 and a half millimeters, uh, and Rolex only just dis- discontinued the 39 millimeter OP. Uh, for the 41 millimeter version, but my guess is that those aren't going to be impossible to find. So if you want a 39 millimeter uh, Rolex that isn't an Explorer, or if you want one with a light dial, maybe this would work for uh, for Victoria as well. Uh, with her previous question, you know they made a white dial 39 millimeter OP, and there's a bunch at 36 millimeters. Uh, if you want to go even smaller than that window that you had provided, 
Uh, so I think now's a, a, a pretty killer time to actually be looking for uh, for watches at, at the size range. And and if you want uh, closer to 40 uh, from a, a less expensive option, you know, the, the Seiko SPB14X line, which I've talked way too much about at this point, but those are 40.5. I'd say they wear maybe even a bit smaller than that on, on wrist. And of course, you can still get a smaller SKX at 37-ish millimeters for the SKX uh, 013. So I I think you're kind of spoiled for choice. Um, While I think definitely the trend in dive watches for the last decade has been towards really big stuff, uh, we're getting more and more coming back towards the uh, sub-41 sort of range. And and then you you have to account for thickness and lug shape and the rest of it because like we've learned and, and talked about before with DOXA, the sub 300s are, are, you know, 42.5 and they don't wear anywhere near that big. Um, so the, there's always that sort of mix of the three case dimensions and then the actual case shape. Uh, and then there's the, the kind of solve for why of the, <laughs> the, the shape of your own wrist. Um, but certainly there's uh, lots of options in 38 to 40 these days. So thanks very much for that question, JD and uh, happy hunting for a smaller watch. Uh, Jason, what do you say we do two more? Let's do it. Uh, next up is Jeff, who's asking us about uh, dress watches. Hi, Jason and James. This is Jeff from San Francisco. I'm a huge fan of the show, and I have listened to every episode over the years. While the show has largely covered sports watches and the adventure lifestyle, you both have made at least passing mentions of dress watches or the idea and fantasy of having one great dress watch. I recently saved for and celebrated a special occasion with a longer one, is my one grail dress watch. I like that I could still wear it casually with a sweatshirt or even a t-shirt in certain situations. If you could pick one dream proper dress watch on leather, what would be your considerations and what would you ultimately choose? Any watch, vintage or new, is fair game. This could be anything from a Max Bill to a Cartier Tank to a vintage paddock, a Grand Seiko Credor, or even a modern independent such as the Acrivia Chronomet Contemporain. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts and selections. Thanks so much for all of your amazing content across all platforms over the years. Take care. You want to go first with that one? Sure. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Langa One. Wow, that's that's a great choice. Um, you know, my dressiest watch currently, I've got a Grand Seiko uh, GMT that I bought in Tokyo that, um, you know, is a great memento of that trip. And it's, it's as dressy as, as I've gone in my own collection. But I have to admit, I never wear it um, unless I have a dressy occasion, which is extremely rare. Um, but I think it meets my criteria in that it's interesting as well as dressy. I think I'll, kind of the classic definition of a dress watch is something that doesn't draw attention to itself. It's supposed to just sort of be a, a small accoutrement to, you know, whatever you're wearing, a suit or a tuxedo or something. Um, and I find a lot of those very stark and minimalist dress watches a bit, shall I say, boring. Um, so I think a dress watch for me would have to have a little bit of zing to it, a little bit of visual interest, maybe a gadget to it. Um, and I think in that respect, I was thinking about this. I keep coming back to the uh, Jaeger LeCoult uh, Reverso. Uh, it's a watch that I, I hardly ever think about, but when I see one, I think to myself, you know, that would just be a fun watch to wear just simply because of what you can do with it. Um, and I think you can engrave the, you know, the opposite side of it uh, and wear it that way. Or you can flip it around and wear it so the time side is out. And I think, you know, it's the right size and an interesting shape. And I, I think I could see wearing something like that. And 
Um, I'm also glad you mentioned the the Jung Hans Max Bill series because I, I love those watches. They're just stunning, um, and I think uh, I think you know as far as something more affordable than say a Reverso, uh, I think I could see myself having a Max Bill one day and kind of wear it on on dressier occasions. James, you used to have a Gerard Perigo dress watch. Is that long gone now? I did. Yeah, I sold that one. It was a simple hand winder. Uh, you know, kind of in the same vein as um, the the Hamilton Intramatic. Oh yeah, uh, 38s that they are in very similar style. A bunch of brands made them uh, back in the 60s. Um, you know, this is a fun question because it, it, it allows me to dream in a space that uh, has a lot of options. Like if you want to talk about very desirable watches uh, with no price limit in mind, uh, there's there's so many great ones. Um, I, I I would be hard fought not to not to end up with something fairly old from Patek Philippe. Uh, you know, I, I have a huge, I think, uh, like a, a gold, gold 1518 uh, chronograph uh, would be pretty incredible. Uh, it, I don't think you can ever go wrong with a 2526, a yellow gold 2526 with the enamel dial. Uh, pretty, pretty insanely beautiful, kind of perfect uh, dress watch aesthetic. Um, and then, I mean, yeah, sky's the limit. Sure, let, let's stock uh, 2499s. Uh, you know, perpetual chronographs, uh, pretty incredible things, great history on those, beautiful watches, uh, great size, you know, and just in, insanely rare. Uh, but honestly, there, there would be a big side of me, uh, Jeff, that would also look for a Lunga one. Um, I have a huge fondness for the early uh, yellow gold closed case back models. Um, they're, they're on, you know, the range of the more affordable you know, uh, secondhand longer ones that are out there, but certainly have had their their rise in the last little while. I think it's interesting to have a movement of that beauty uh, covered. It's it's a very German decision uh, to do so, and and I think those are really gorgeous watches. Um, as far as, as something on a more accessible side, uh, considering I've just spoke about a handful of watches that could easily be seven figure in some cases. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't know. The the youngins is a great option. Uh, a simple. I would probably try and find maybe a a, a second hand quartz Cartier tank. Uh, you know, in the quartz side, it's not going to cost you nearly as much, and you might even have a little bit more flexibility in terms of the size that you get. Uh, but those are kind of timeless and elegant and, and beautiful, and what everybody says about them. And I think I think that's where I would land. Uh, either something like a tank. Uh, I don't think you can go wrong with a Longa one ever. What a cool, cool thing. And then if we're truly talking sky's the limit, get me a super rare uh, yellow gold uh, uh, Patek Philippe, uh, preferably a perpetual. Uh, and, and if it's a perpetual chrono, all the better. Good question. Very uh, a little bit left of, of TGN's typical uh, subject matter, and I like that. So thanks for that. Last question coming from Nacho from Argentina. Hey guys, Nacho here from Argentina and I wanted to ask you guys a question about increasing popularity of watches and vintage watches in the last five years. Nowadays we're seeing more and more enthusiasts getting into the hobby and also in the vintage market too. Eight, five years ago you could buy a Universal Geneva Polaroid for as little as $800 when nowadays they go for two to three thousand US dollars. What do you guys think the reason for that is? And yeah, a uh, huge fan of the great NATO and looking forward to the next episode. 
Hey, Nacho, thanks very much for that question. So, uh, Jason, if you don't mind, I can I can kick this one off. Uh, I, I, you know, I think a big thing is probably uh, the difference between the cost of a watch five years ago or ten years ago and now is probably uh, in part due to, uh, it, it, you know, the fault of people like Jason and I. Uh, ten, ten years ago, we, we you know, blogs were kind of just kicking off. I mean, Hodinkee's in its 12th year uh, now, and I think the popularity really started to hit, say, about five or six years ago. Uh, in terms of these being be, becoming, you know, the various blogs of which there's now a couple dozen that have become kind of the voice of the enthusiast, but to a much larger audience than it used to be. Um, you know, maybe when there was a, a an in depth post on on something a decade ago, it was on Time Zone, and a few thousand people saw it and 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 kind of understood what they were looking at, and and maybe understood the provenance of something like a UG pole router. But then when you combine uh, the, the growth and kind of pro- proliferation of, of so-called professional uh, watch blogging, and then on top of that Instagram, I think that a lot of things that maybe previously kind of changed hands in their own circle suddenly had some visibility outside of that circle. So maybe UG guys have always known about pull routers and, and whatnot, and, and, and the price kind of reflected the size of that circle and, and the general desirability within that circle, but then... When, if that leaves, if that leaves the kind of group, then you have kind of a change in that. And I think that's happened to a lot of vintage watches. And um, and I think the other thing, I th- and this would be interesting, Jason, to see what you think on this, is I think there's just a general come up with, um, uh, you know, beautiful vintage watches simply because of what's happened with things like some of the Pateks I just listed, like a lot of Rolexes, like a lot of APs. Um, I, I think there's a general you know, rising of all ships uh, when it comes to these things. And and as soon as there's a backstory about the watch has any provenance, even if it's not from a brand like Rolex or AP or or Patek Philippe, uh, it can still see a huge rise in, in price just based on how many there are on the market. Yeah, I think I think there's, a, you know, several factors at work here. I think if you want to take a more sort of cultural, psychological perspective, you know, maybe there's some nostalgia at work for a, a simpler time, um, you know, or, or things that um, have sort of lasting value uh, in a world in which everything is so, you know, constructed for obsolescence and we're replacing our phones every couple of years and leasing cars for three years and, and things like this. Um, I think from uh, maybe a different perspective, uh, you know, what, what you said, James, about, you know, just simply the ability to, to read about this stuff and, and share it, um, whether on the blogs that, that rose you know, 10, 12 years ago into the magazines and, and onto social media. Um, but I think also, you know, the way people wear watches nowadays, uh, we're, we're not wearing watches by and large as tools like people used to. You know, you, you, grandpa used to get up in the morning, put his watch on to tell the time, and he had one watch and he'd wear it to the office or wherever he was going to work and come home and take it off in the evening. Um it was on his wrist all the time. I think nowadays people have collections, people wear them more carefully, even modern watches. And I think in that case, a vintage watch functions just as well as, and, and could be treated the same as, as a luxury modern watch. And so I think they become a little more wearable in that respect. But I also feel that um, people also like what's rare. And I think if you can go to a Jared Jewelers or a shopping mall or just even a a Rolex dealer and, and plunk down and buy a watch, a modern watch. Um, once you get into that and you start taking interest in watches, you read about this rare piece, this Paul Newman, whatever it is, 
and you think, huh, you know, there are these rarer pieces out there that if I wear it, it sets me apart from the guy sitting across the aisle on the plane who's got the new Rolex if I'm wearing one from 1978 or something. And I think, I don't know what it is about human nature that we like rare things, um, but the older things get, they tend to get more and more rare because they get lost or damaged. And um, so it's not even enough to have a 1978 Rolex. You have to have a 1978 Rolex with a peculiar kind of dial or that belonged to somebody that was famous or something. And um, I think it sort of just goes on and on from there down these very narrow channels, such as uh, your, your example of the Universal Genevs. Um, but it's it's a bigger topic, you know, it could almost be a whole episode for us discussing for the, sure. the appeal of, of vintage watches, but it's a fascinating one. I think that there's something to be said for the fact that the current range of popularity in in everything from furniture to cars is, is that sort of late 50s uh, into the 60s. And that was certainly a sweet point for architecture, for furniture, for automobiles, and, and certainly for watches. Uh, you know, the birth of a lot from dive watches to sports chronographs to everything else. And and I think part of it is, is tied to that. And then the other thing that I, I didn't touch on in, in my previous reply was simply that the metric of being able to buy these has changed in the last three years, even, or four years. You don't have to know someone directly. You don't have to go to Italy to get the watch anymore. Uh, not only are there a lot of vintage dealers that are perfectly trustworthy and, and are doing a great business bringing these watches to a wider audience in a safer manner, one that presents less risk to the buyer, uh, but that didn't exist a few years ago. You know, uh, online retail uh, for new watches is, is is really just starting to take off. And, and for uh, vintage watches, especially in terms of metrics of being safe and how you're paying, um, the dealers have always been around. They've been around for a long time, of course, and could still find you the same watch 20 years ago as you would want now. But you now have kind of a, a more uh, store, almost retail-like experience versus, you know, like buying a watch from a guy that you don't know. And I think that speaks to um, to the, the general kind of appreciation for these watches is if you remove barriers like the knowledge barrier, the enthusiast barrier, and even then some of the barriers of, of sourcing the actual model that you want. Uh, if you remove all of those, you'll, you're, you're going to create kind of a pathway that brings more people to a watch that maybe wasn't always that well known. Yeah, I, I think all that's true. I think, uh, I think by and large, it's a great thing. I mean, other than, you know, the rising prices that, that keep us from being able to buy all these great pieces. Uh, I, I love to see old watches get their further time in the sun. For sure. Well, thanks very much for that question, Nacho, and for you know everybody else that sent in a question. We got to as many as we could today. Uh, surprisingly, we still have a, a good chunk that we'll have to go to next month's. Um, you know, I didn't want this to be uh, much more than an hour long. We're pushing up on an hour and a half now. Uh, maybe we need to rethink how long a Q&A episode can be. Maybe we should just go for it and get them all done and, and hope that you guys will send in more questions. Uh, you know, if, if you want more questions on the Q and a, be sure to send your own in, uh, if we get flooded with them, we'll have to clear them out at some point. So, uh, you'll get that long episode somewhere down the road. But, uh, yeah, like, like I said at the top, please, if you have a question for us, say it directly into the voice memo app on your phone, uh, try and keep it to a minute if you can and email it to the at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from each and every one of you. And we, uh, really appreciate uh, the time that uh, all of our question askers took uh, to send in their questions for this episode. Uh, when you hear this, uh, I'm actually not totally sure, but probably uh, just a few days after we record it. And I, I hope you guys all like it. 
Yeah, and as always, thanks so much for listening and for sending in your questions. You can follow us on Instagram at Jason Heaton and at J.E. Stacy, and be sure to follow the show at The Grey NATO. And if you have any questions for us, please do write to thegraynado at gmail.com because we do still answer email questions as well, and of course, send in those voice memos. Please subscribe and review wherever you find your podcasts. Music throughout is Siesta by Jazzar via the Free Music Archive. And we leave you with this quote from Samuel Johnson, who said, Curiosity is, in great and generous minds, the first passion and the last. <laughs>